I'm going to read the first 11 verses. This will be our focus this morning. I'll go to the second part of this chapter later when I return from my travels. But for this morning, I want us to start this psalm, which is a psalm contrasting the king of heaven and the kings of earth. And what happens to those who worship the king of heaven and what happens to those who worship the kings of earth. I'll read verses 1 through 11 this morning. Not to us, Lord, not to us, but to your name be the glory because of your love and faithfulness. Why do the nations say, where is their God? Our God is in heaven. He does whatever pleases him, but their idols are silver and gold made by human hands. They have mouths but cannot speak, eyes but cannot see, they have ears but cannot hear, noses but cannot smell, they have hands but cannot feel, feet but cannot walk, nor can they utter a sound with their throats. Those who make them will be like them, and so will all who trust in them. All you Israelites trust in the Lord. He is their help and shield. House of Aaron, trust in the Lord. He is their help and their shield. You who fear him, trust in the Lord. He is their help and shield. Thus far the reading of God's word. You may be seated. Let me pray now for the blessing of the preaching of it. Lord, we do ask that the words of my mouth And the meditation of all of our hearts would be found acceptable in your sight. O Lord, our rock and our redeemer, we pray. Amen. This morning, we continue in this section uh, that I have planned for this summer. I know that folks will be in and out of town quite a bit. I myself will be in and out of town a bit. And it wouldn't do us any good to try to continue through either the book of Revelation or a narrative series in the evening. We will go back to the book of Deuteronomy as the fall approaches. And so I've chosen the fifth book of the Psalter, which thematically often coincides with the themes of the book of Deuteronomy. The law of the kingdom, the king himself, the citizens of that kingdom. Uh, This morning I want us to look at the king that we have, those who put their trust in him, and the kings of this earth, and what underlies their worship, for all of us are made to be worshipers. There are no real committed atheists. There are just those who are proficient at self-denial. This morning, as we look at Psalm 115, it's a lot like Psalm 135. If you've read Psalm 135, it's essentially verbatim Psalm 115. These two psalms are in this section, the fifth book of the Psalter, in order to show that the law is not merely a list of do's and don'ts the saints of God are called to follow, the citizens of that heavenly kingdom, even that earthly kingdom. But ultimately what it comes down to is the degree to which we are obedient to the law of God is connected to the degree to which we are enamored with the king himself, our affections. Children, what it means is this... If you love your parents, (laughs) you will obey them. 
You will love your parents in the Lord, and as you grow older and your love matures, one of the things that I experienced in my own heart, even as I interacted with my parents, was that I said, Mom, Dad, I love you, and I did, but oftentimes what that meant, even as a child, was I have this deep affection and reliance upon you, but as I got older, there was this sort of sentiment in my heart that in order to be my own independent person, I needed to sort of push back on the laws of the house. But I came to the conclusion, especially after having my own children, not just a a deeper sense of appreciation for my parents. Not only did I understand their weaknesses in greater detail, but I also really began to appreciate what they sacrificed, what they gave up, their devotion and love for me. And I began to love the things that I saw in my home that as a teenager I did not like. I did not like physical admonishment when I was a young child. Now I ask, why did it not happen more? I could have used more of those moments of discipline. We ought to love what the king loves And ultimately, when it comes to his law, we only come to appreciate it as beautiful when we see the beauty and the glory of the king, especially in contrast to the kings of this earth, what we could have, the king that could be over us, for we have no king but Christ. Three points that I want to make this morning as it relates to the theme of this psalm and our own lives lived as under the Lord. The first, a proper flow of affections. A proper flow of affection. Second, the kings of this world. And thirdly, the king of heaven and earth. Simple enough. Let's go to the first point. A proper flow of affections. We were made to love. We were given that capacity. We were made to love all that God made and to love it as he loves it and to call it good. We love all manner of things. We love food. We love family We love, at times, our jobs, not always. We love the the things that we purchase. We are emotional creatures, and the way in which we relate to all things is emotionally. We are not Gnostic robots. We are embodied souls made after the image of God, and God laughs And so we laugh. God loves and so we love. God directs his affections toward beauty and so do we. Worship is the highest corporate expression of directing our affections towards something. It could be the Carolina Panthers. It could be a political party. It could be an ideology. It could be another person. It could be a movie, it could be music, it could be anything. That's worship. And the fact that we are by nature made by God to be worshipers is really the greatest intrinsic evidence that we are made by God and made for God. Worship in its highest form is corporate. You are worshipers as individuals. You're fans of things. 
But when we come together as God's people, what we are doing is we are laying aside the distractions of this world as best we can, and we are together focusing our attention upon our covenant-making and keeping God, and we are exalting in him. And so we speak of the things that he has done, who he is, what he has done for us, what we expect him to do, his faithfulness, all of these things. And so when we gather for worship in the morning and in the evening on the Lord's Day, that is the primary exercise of all of the other worship we do every day of the week. This is it. This is the pinnacle. And not only is it the highest form of worship, but it is also the kind of exercise that informs all that we do in the rest of our lives. So the kind of disposition that we are to have as people is in verse 1. Not to us, O Lord, not to us, but to your name give glory. Worship is also, as we come together and exalt God's name, an explicit attack on the idols of our hearts, chiefly ourselves. And so in worship, the discomfort that we find in worship is the tearing down of self-worship. That's why we confess our sins. Every Sunday morning, we explicitly read God's law, examine ourselves in light of that law, and then we say, oof, I have not done this that you have commanded me to do, Lord, and I have done the very thing you've told me not to do. Disobedience is evidence of a life not spent in proper worship. Parents, have your children singing the psalms. Have your children singing the catechism. All of those things from an early age. To hear your children singing throughout the house is to establish habits that they will carry with them for the rest of their life. Put it to song. We were made to sing. And to sing and to sing and to sing because music and song has a way of not only aiding memory, but the reason that it aids memory is because it just, it just implants ideas deep into your heart. And there are good songs and there are bad songs. Bad songs are singing the glory of some particular tyrannical dictator that rules and reigns in North Korea. Have you ever seen how many children these communist dictators surround them? Why do you think they're doing that? Because they know how to change a culture. How do you change a culture? You get the hearts of the children. Parents, be jealous for the hearts of your children. And teach them from a very early age that while they're playing with their Christmas gifts... They are singing, not to me, not to me, right? Our culture is inundated with all of these celebrations of the self. My truth, my birthday, my, 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 my. That is a complete inversion of biblical sentiment about how you are to identify. You are to identify as one made in the image of God. And so our entire lives are to be spent pouring out sincere substantive, first-fruit affection. Sunday's the first day of the week. It's not what you do at the end of a week where you, have, where you have worked so hard that you can't stay awake. You stayed up so late on Saturday partying. This is what Harry Reader used to say, the pastor now in Briarwood in Alabama, but in 
uh, Christ's covenant in Matthew's Saturday Night Live is Sunday Morning Dead. And that's thematic for our whole lives. Sunday is like this sort of scrap day. All the chores you didn't get done, all the things that you couldn't accomplished, you just sort of pile it in that space in the corner of the room and you hope nobody goes there. That's what Sunday often becomes. But Sunday is the day in which we are focusing our hearts, our attention, our worship, so that we can aim and create a trajectory and a pattern for our whole lives of worship. We are to redirect our affections, and it it happens all the time. We are finding zero. Worship helps us stop worshiping the stuff of earth. And it is in contrast to what we see in verse 2 and 3. We are those who say of ourselves, not to us, but to the glory, or glory be to God. And this is in light of a culture where we are surrounded by this question, where is your God? And then we answer to them, our God is in heaven, and he can do whatever he wants. It comes close almost to a schoolyard taunt. And frankly, in the church, we have lost some of this boldness and bravado. There is too much apologizing for the Old Testament, too much apologizing for being outspoken and declarative to the world that cannot abide. And their question is always, where is your God? Now, sometimes this is a well-meaning question, a true skeptic. But how many of those have you ever met? I would love to have more of them come into this church. But usually, especially here in 115, this is a polemic. A polemic is an aggressive argument for the point of tearing down. Where is their God? Where is your God? It's a taunt. Now, why do they ask this question? It is not because they cannot see him or know him or believe in him. Because Paul makes it very clear in Romans chapter 1 that there is no man or woman or child of normal mental capacity who has ever said there is no God. For every man has known that there is a God. But what they do is they suppress the knowledge of God and exchange it for a lie. This question is not a well-meaning question. This is a question meant to put us to the test in order that we might drop the bravado, that we might lower our guard, that we might de-arm ourselves as saints. Where is your God is a question of, do you really believe in someone that you cannot see? Or the question, do you believe that there is a good God who lets bad things happen? Do you understand those questions? We understand those questions. And we've heard those questions. What they're trying to do is to convince themselves by undermining your faith that they are right, right in their rebellion against God. They want you on their side. They want you to question. And you must not do that. And the place where you gain confidence, the place where your questions are answered, is in worship. What I mean by that is this. When you apply your heart to understanding God's word, 
when you cast your faith and your trust upon him, he will make himself known to you. And so when we say our God is in the heavens, he does what he pleases, we are not speaking of his remoteness as an answer to the question of why he feels remote. We are speaking of his sovereignty as an answer to why they seek to put themselves upon the throne. God is as present in the hearts and minds of unbelievers as judge as he ought to be in our hearts as father and redeemer. It's everywhere. His presence and the knowledge of God is everywhere. There is no place where you can escape the knowledge of God. It's impossible. But what they are doing is they are redirecting through their rebellion their worship of the God who is in heaven, who they know, but they're using this terrible excuse to not worship him to direct their worship to the stuff of earth. And what we are called to do is to redirect our affections away from the stuff of earth to the one who sits upon the throne in heaven. That is what worship is. It's you getting your heart right. It is you redevoting yourself day after day, Lord's day after Lord's day, to the one who is the true king of heaven and earth. Second point, the psalmist begins to talk about the kings of this world. So they're going to ask you this question. How can you believe in a God that you can't see? And this is the question I want you to ask them. How can you believe in a God that is lesser even than you? We worship a God who has made us. They worship God they had to make. Does that make sense? There is nothing rational about our sins, though, is there? This is the illogic of it all. So let's look at the second point, the kings of this world. Now, you may not see the word king here. But what you find at the end of all of your affections is the one you worship. That one is Lord of your life. That is your king. So who are the kings of earth? Their idols are silver and gold, the work of human hands. They have mouths but do not speak, eyes but do not see. They have ears but do not hear, noses but do not smell. They have hands but do not feel, feet but do not walk. And they make no sound in their throats. Those who make them... Become like them, so do all who trust in them. In fact, the only reason you can ask, the only way you can ask the question in verse 2, where is your God, is if you are stupid in your senses. You are deaf, dumb, and blind. You do not see, hear, understand, or speak. You are soul-wise dead in your trespasses and sins. The kinds of people that ask question, where is your God, are the kinds of people who have been completely stupefied in their false worship. But you, Christian, you have been given senses that are awakened to the truth of God's word. You see, hear, smell, touch, feel, that's the same thing whatever the fifth sense is, (laughs) speak in ways that the world cannot. I once was lost, but now I'm found. I was once was dead, but now I am alive. The worship of the unrepentant is the worship of dead things. It is the worship of things that are mute, still, 
They have no life. They cannot hear the pleas of your cries for help. The worship of the unrepentant, of those who do not incorporate unison, exhort one another to the worship of a holy God, but rather incorporate unison, cry out what? To men. Screaming in awe of celebrities, musicians, sport figures. They have posters of people on their walls. Of course, you know who the first pinup was? Martin Luther, <laughs> the great reformer. This happened around the time of the printing press. And there were young men who were celebrating their hero. He's actually the first of all, I guess pinup is not the right word, poster. That is our tendency. It is to honor someone or something else with our affections. The world is adept at this. We all are. But the world tends to worship that which cannot actually give them the things that they want. Now, there are ways in which this has happened. In man's ignorance of God, though he sees him in creation and knows that he stands condemned by a God who is a judge, there are many who have not been given the grace of special revelation. And so you will find missionaries going to these places, tribes, and not just tribes, Washington, D.C. <laughs> is now a place devoted to paganism. It's very sophisticated. It's in a three-piece suit. There's air conditioning and copy machines. But we see this today even in our own culture, right? It is a rejection of things that we once knew. And this is oftentimes the cycle of mankind. We exchange and or suppress and exchange. Dead men craft worthless gods in the hopeless endeavor that these gods will help them escape the condemnation that they feel in their hearts against the true and living God. This is the condition, then, of all sinners. It is not moral neutrality. It is moral schizophrenia. And this is why the world is so upside down. It's not choosing one way or another way, a good way or a less good way. It is life and death. The psalmist gives a very clear description of the worthlessness of these gods. First, they are crafted by men. Allah is a human invention. The God of the Jews is a human invention. For they have rejected the God who is the Redeemer, Jesus Christ. Buddha, invention. All of them are inventions. In fact, they are not even the stuff of earth. They are the imagination of demons. And they only bring death. And look at the kinds of people that worship these gods. And what becomes of them. In fact, that is always the fruit of it. There is the God, and there is the one who worships. 
You only need go to Elijah and the prophets of Baal. And there Elijah lays before the Lord an altar of wood and stone. And this showdown between the hundreds of the prophets of Baal, 600 or more prophets of Baal. And it is this, well, it's the showdown at the OK Corral. Who's going to win? And the, the prophets of Baal go first. They place their sacrifice upon the altar and they cry out to their God. And in crying out to him, they begin to cut themselves and disfigure their bodies. We see these things now. How else can a man who thinks he is a woman convince himself he is a woman by mutilating the very gift of the body that God has given him and vice versa? How can we eliminate the economic burden that is our children? We what? We mutilate their bodies. And here they are, worshiping this pagan god who does not exist. They're knocking on the door and no one is actually behind the door. And you know what Satan loves? He loves to give you the offer and then deny you the fruit of that offer. He loves to trick you. He delights in the downfall of those who bear the image of God. Satan is not for you. And though he promised to Eve and to her husband great glory, he knew the whole time. The only objective was to what? To hurt the heart of God and to destroy the thing that God had made. And so here are the prophets of Baal. And Elijah goes, maybe you need to say it louder Maybe he's relieving himself in the bathroom, which all the boys in the church in every age laugh at. And you should laugh and weep for these people. And they never got an answer. They got what? They got wages of sin. In essence, what they were doing was they were play-acting death. What else is cutting? And so then Elijah says, here's what we're going to do. You take 12 jars of water, and then you put it on the altar. And then Elijah stands before the Lord and the prophets of Baal. This is worship, right? All worship takes place in the presence of God. The saints who were there, there were just a few remnant, and the watching world. And Elijah says, Lord, your glory is at stake here. Show these prophets of Baal who you are. And fire came down from heaven, and it just didn't take the wet sacrifice It evaporated everything. And then Elijah and the citizens of Israel who were faithful to the Lord slaughtered every one of those prophets of Baal. You worship or you become what you worship. You become what you behold. You end up like the thing you worship. And what we need to see, saints of God, is that this is not a doxology of life. It is a doxology of death. And when we are called to worship, think of our own liturgy. And I know it's the same every Sunday. But it always, wherever my bulletin is, not that I need to see it as a refresher, you know it. It begins with a call. The God of heaven speaks to you from his word. He says, come into my house. And then he leaves or he sends you on your way with a benediction. There is nothing in earth that blesses us like this. Not your car. For as soon as you get that car you've always wanted, is it really a blessing? Right? 
Does it come with lifetime supply of gasoline? It's a money pit. It's all mammon. It's all you just heap. And I mean, think of parents feeding your children. It's just a thing into which you throw money sometimes. That is earth. Even the image of uh, men who bear the image of God, we all wind down. We tend towards decay and destruction, and that's where we're placing our hope. We have, we have an idolatry even of our children in reform circles or education. And we place our hope in all of these things that when they cannot satisfy or they do not deliver, we are utterly wrecked and disappointed. These are the kings of earth, but then there is a king who is in heaven. Already we know that he is in heaven and he does what he pleases. Elsewhere in scripture we read that God is in heaven and he laughs. Our God is a cheerful God. And we ought to be able to do what God does in the face of great danger and that is laugh. But you cannot laugh if you're crying for the idols you're mourning as they die. This is why even in the death of saints, Christians can smile and they can have hope and they can rejoice because death is not the end. We believe in the resurrection. And so the king of heaven and earth, beginning in verse eight, uh, 9, O Israel, trust in the Lord. He is your help and shield. O house of Aaron, trust in the Lord. He is your help and shield. You who fear the Lord, trust in the Lord. He is your help and shield. Now later, not in this sermon, we're going to run out of time, but later we're going to look at the next part of this psalm as we read what God has done, why he is worthy of worship. But what the psalmist is doing is he is reminding who we are, the saints. We're the house of Aaron. We're Israel. We're the house of Aaron. We are those who are called to fear the Lord. And three times, he is our help and shield. He is our help and shield. Do you get the point that this is not only a psalm to be sung, and to, but to remember? And this part in particular. When the world asks us, where is your God? You can say to them what? Well, he's in heaven. He's the king of heaven and earth. And you may not be able to see him, but I see your God. And frankly, the chrome is its a little tarnished right now. What is the great God of men right now in the West? It's the state. We worship power. And we worship power in such a way that instead of living freely... Under the glorious law of God, we shackle ourselves and we trade liberty for what? A little bit of money. Just a little bit. So that I don't have to work for it, worry about it. But what Satan always does is this. He says, come on, it's good, take it. And then he grasps your hand and he drags you to hell. Maybe that's too close of application. But that's the promise, right? Lady Folly, Lady Wisdom, they both promise glory. One actually delivers, the other doesn't. Lady Folly has a mouth that is an open grave, and she will eat you alive. But there is the Lord, and he is our help and our shield. For one of the great themes of the book of Deuteronomy is that though God is seated upon the throne of heaven, he is not remote. 
He is near. He is our help and our shield. He is not a remote help. There are no remote helps or shields, right? The world promises help, right? Guess what? Help is on the way, they say, as they're running for office. And then they get into office and you go, where's the help? Where's my shield? And this is true in every age, not just our age. And it's because of two reasons. Men ultimately cannot help you the way that God helps you. They cannot. They are the stuff of earth. Or they don't want to help you the way they promised to help you. Children, even your parents cannot help you the way they want to help you. Your fathers cannot protect you from every ill. But God can. And he does. He is our help and our shield. Three times we are told this. As our triune Lord pours out his covenant affections upon his people, we need to come to worship and we need to be reminded because our hearts tend to wander. Over and over and over again, we ought to be reminded, we need to remind ourselves that God is our threefold help and shield. And if there is ever a reason to worship, it is this. Our God speaks and has a strong arm. Our God is a redeemer who is a priest. He helps us from a place of intimate proximity. You're in his house this morning. And it doesn't mean you leave his house when you leave this place. As a child of God, you have been brought, covenantally speaking, into his house forever. Into his house forever. And so what the psalmist is doing is he is revealing the two kinds of religion, the two kinds of houses, the two kinds of kings. As it relates to religion, either we cover ourselves or we are covered by Christ. As it relates to houses, we are found either in the house of Satan or in the house of God. And as it relates to kings, either we worship the stuff of this earth or we worship the one who made the earth. Our God is worthy of song, of our love, of all worship and honor. Listen, this is not a psalm that says, do not own things. It's a psalm that says, don't worship what you own. Don't be owned by it. But to express a confidence in the sovereignty of God is the one who gives and takes away. There is no promise for a life of good health here, right? But there is a promise in this, that even though my heart and my flesh may fail, God is my strength and portion forever. And that even though we may die in this life, which we all will, we will be awakened in eternity. And I long for the day when my affections are not divided When I don't want the stuff of earth in a way that is immoral and compromised, but for the day when I see Christ and everything else just sort of dims. Not that it isn't good or beautiful or wonderful, but compared to the matchless glory of Christ, it does not command my affections. Our God is worthy of song. He's worthy of our love. He is worthy of all worship and honor. Now, what we are doing is this. 
even as we sing this psalm, we're singing it to ourselves, we're singing it to one another, and we are also singing it in a world that does not know how to invest wisely their possessions. So um, if you get on YouTube, if you get on the internet at all, you're going to find a lot of ads right now. Have y'all gotten these solar energy? That's all I've gotten for like a year. Buy solar, buy solar. And what they're saying is what? Invest in your financial future. Or if it's not solar, it's some investment scheme. Do this, do that. The world is constantly saying, and rightly so to some degree, if you've got money, it's right to want to make more of it as much as you can. But at the end of the day, if you've made $100, $200, well, now you can fill up your whole tank full of gas. Congratulations, you can, you can finally do it. But $200 for what? The currency of this world is only good in this world. And that's good, but only as good as it goes. As only as long as this world lasts, or not just this world, but I remember in 1993 going to the Ukraine where it was so many coupons for the dollar, and two years later it was a thousand, a thousandth in value of what it was just two years before. Starving. And what the world is continually trying to do is tell you to do this. Um, we want you to continue this vain investment scheme. Just keep doing it. And at some point, it will pay off. And the Christian is looking and going, no, it won't. And you see people all around you laying up these investment schemes in stuff that will not pay off, and you turn away from them even though you have the truth. Eh. The richness of the glory of the perspective of Christ is meant to be shared. We are meant to sing this song polemically. So when someone says to you, you don't believe in, in evolution? You can say, yeah, you're right. I don't believe I came from a monkey. But then you also have to say, as our friend Spencer Griggs says, we do believe a donkey talked. <laughs> We are establishing and conveying competing ideologies, but one has the seat of authority and the throne of heaven and earth, a God who is able to give the very thing that every human soul longs for. And then the false promises of this earth. Yes, you will go out into the world and they're going to look at you going, I don't know about your investment scheme. But you continue to sing Psalm 115. And what will happen is this, and every one of you can attest to this, who truly knows the Lord, God is good to Israel. And though I may have nothing, I have Christ. The missionary Amy Carmichael years ago when she was working in India, single her whole life, poor, struggling, alone oftentimes, working in these orphanages, someone came to her for a Christian magazine and said, don't you feel lonely and she said, yeah, often I am. But I have Christ, and he is enough. And what does God own? Well, now we'll get here in another couple weeks, but look at verse 16 to close. The heavens are the Lord's. The heavens are the Lord's. 
If you wish to live a life of glory, of blessing, a satisfied and fulfilled life, worship the king of heaven. Don't worship the kings of earth. Worship the king and be strengthened and satisfied, transformed and grounded in his promises. And what you will find as you begin to sing his song, you will come to know it in your heart, deep down. And the world will hear it and they'll say, you know what? That's what I want. And we will transform the nations. Let's pray. Oh, Lord, our God, we ask this morning.